Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Kevin Vost, the author of more than 20 books. Today, we discuss his new book, Humble Strength. Kevin is a clinical psychologist, professor, and speaker. His work covers a wide array of topics from ancient philosophy, theology, and even strength training. In the conversation, Kevin and I discuss discernment, misconceptions around humility, how humility can lead to truth, the connection between fear and humility, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Kevin Vost. Welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Well, thanks uh, so much for having me back again, Joshua. Well, I'm excited to have you back. I uh, was uh, recently updating the website, and I have to also thank you for being one of the first guests on the show. I saw your episode number two, and now we're coming up somewhere around 100. So, oh, yeah, thank oh. you again. Well, you're welcome. Fantastic. And today we're going to be talking about your new book, Humble Strength. Uh, but before we get into the book... We generally talk a little bit about discernment and, you know, what initially started a, a search. And I know we've talked a little bit about that in the past, but I've, I wanted to ask something specific that I think could be helpful for the, for the listeners. I'm curious about discerning a career path. You initially started out as a clinical psychologist and now, you know, transitioned to a full-time writer what comes to mind when you think about if there's maybe young people or somebody listening that is, you know, trying to navigate some sort of discernment of a path in life? Any thoughts? Yeah, there I'd say, and you know, if I'm not sure this might be outdated, but I remember at least from some years back, it said more than half of, of young people in college end up changing their major. So, so keep in mind that your first choice may not be written in stone. Many of us do do switch, but, but I do really recommend, if possible, if possible, follow a career path that, that kind of excites you, that you do have some degree of passion for it, that you can be enthused about about learning more about this particular uh, subject area. So, I will say for me, I remember when I started college, um, I was just totally immersed in bodybuilding and weightlifting at the time. So, my first thought was, "Hmm, I'm going to be a nutritionist." I was also like totally health food, ate no junk food. I'm going to be a nutritionist. And I realized I, I was a homebody. I wasn't going to leave town in our local community college, our local Catholic college, our local university. None of them had a major in dietetics or nutrition. So that, that was kind of ruled out. Um, so my next choice, I love philosophy. So, oh, I'll be a philosophy major. But same situation. I couldn't do that. <laughs> uh, so when I ended up making my choice. I thought, well, I love philosophy. What's the next best thing? And, and to me, it was psychology since there was so much overlap there in, in the philosophy of mind and how we know what we know and the relationship between logic and psychology and things like that. So, so you know, I'd say just 
So for young people, see what excites you and see what's realistic and feasible. And you might be kind of surprised where where it leads. You know, then in my own case, too, uh, when I was working at a gym, I, I met a good friend of mine who was a, a mentor who had administrative position within the state of Illinois. And, and he helped me get a job that was related to psychology at first, but it was actually uh, the adjudication of disability claims for Social Security disability. It was done through a state agency, but, but working for the federal agency. And I found that fascinating because half of it was psychology. It was mental issues we were addressing for possible disability. The other half was physical, and that also tied into my interest uh, you know, in, in taking care of the body and what can go wrong with the body and disease and so So things kind of meshed very well there. Later in my own course, you know, sometimes we just get happy coincidences. And when I was this disability adjudicator, the state of Illinois offered a special program for people who wanted to pursue doctorates in clinical psychology. And, and I was able to do that while working full-time through, through most of it until my dissertation and internship year. Uh, and then at that point, I got the degree as a clinical psychologist, but what I mainly wanted to do was teach. And I'd already been doing that part-time uh, at University of Illinois Springfield, where I live. Also, I just kept doing that, and I, I stayed in the disability field, so it all worked out very nicely until after the end of a 32-year career in 2016, uh, I retired from full-time work. And since that time, I've only, I just, I write books, you know, and do talks and, and occasionally get invited to wonderful podcasts uh, like this. But I'd say to the young person, yeah, kind of follow your, your passion, learn as much as you can, and keep open, keep your eyes open for options if your original path seems blocked in some way. I really appreciate that, Kevin, and I think it's uh, it's helpful. It's such a difficult decision for, for so many. That second career or that second half of life, now you've, you've been writing for a number of years, many, many books. How did you decide on that and, and find your way there? Was there a first book that you just had to, had to write? Yes. You know, most of my books now, and I'm, I'm t- I think 24 is getting ready to come out. They're, they're mostly with Catholic publishers. So they all have some kind of a religious theme of theology, philosophy. Then I tie in my interest in psychology and, and fitness, you know, and, and within that framework. Um, but, but yeah, when, when I first came back to the Catholic Church, I spent like 25 years as an atheist. And, and I came back in my early 40s after reading the philosophy and theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. And when I had come back, I remembered that my in my specialty area of psychology, which was human memory. I had done a master's thesis on memory improvement techniques, zooming in on adolescents and how they can improve in their schoolwork and so on. And then my doctoral work uh, was at an Alzheimer's center and in a medical school. So I was looking at the other end of life and what happens when memory declines. Did a little bit of work on memory rehab, not with the Alzheimer's patients, but with people with certain other kinds of of brain damage. So, so anyway, when I come back to the church, I remembered that actually St. Thomas Aquinas himself was considered one of the key figures in the history of these memory improvement techniques. The, the techniques themselves come back from ancient Greeks like Simonides and Romans like Cicero. But Thomas Aquinas was a person who wrote about them in Latin and kind of passed them on to Europe, him and his teacher, St. Albert the Great. So my first book was called Memorize the Faith and because and, I realized I knew Thomas was very big in these memory techniques, but I'd never seen a modern Catholic book that even mentioned it. So I thought, boy, you know, maybe I can put this to use. And we came up with a book called Memorize the Faith that that used these special visual 
imagery memory methods to memorize tenets of the faith, things like the Ten Commandments, the, the names of the books of the Bible, the Rosary Mysteries, things like that. So, so that kind of started my course, that first book, Memorize the Faith, that came out in 2006, which actually is still my bestseller uh, to date. But that kind of opened the door for a whole variety of books on different topics, some saint biographies, many touching on psychology, some on, on fitness, many of them kind of popularizing the works of St. Thomas Aquinas for modern readers, and a couple of them doing the same thing for, for the ancient Stoics, because I was always very impressed with, with the natural wisdom of the Stoics, people like Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius. It's so interesting when you think about your background, learning, and, and memory. As I'm reading through this new book of humble strength, how we might call it very practical. You know, there's lots of questions and reflections and summaries. I kept thinking about your your background of really helping us to to get this this wisdom in our in our bones. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what is the the power of a of a question at the end of a chapter and how might we think about that for some books that maybe don't include something like that, some reflection questions. How can we uh, incorporate that? Yeah, I think that's good. And I, and I will say, you know, in what little humility I have personally, that this was a book where the publisher asked me to write on this topic. And I remember my wife was just kind of cracking up laughing. You know, <laughs> they must think you need to learn about this topic. You need to do this research, which is, which is probably uh, true. But but the, the publisher, you know, helped guide this. And in some ways, in some ways, this is the most challenging book I've written. It's the one that took the longest to come out. It was about it was about two years. But yeah, we wanted to make this as user friendly as possible, including things like questions that could help us, to, you know, direct this into to how actually living out our our daily lives. And I will say another area where Ascension, the publisher, was had a very good influence. I think is that, you know, I tend to think like Thomas and like the Stoics, sometimes at kind of an abstract level. And they wanted to bring this book to life as much as possible. So after my first writing, I had lots of little stories. That was also one of the key features. Okay, let's see this lived out in someone's daily life, maybe someone from the ancient past, someone from today, even a fictionalized story here and there. And then pull out the lessons, look at the abstract principles that come from it. So, yeah, I think the idea of of questions and stories were two of the things that I tried to employ in this book uh, to bring it to life. And interestingly, as I look back, you know, I'm always influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas, and he has a big role in the way I structured uh, this book. But his most famous book, the Summa Theologica, is, is entirely a question and answer book. There's literally thousands of questions and answers that, that bring that book alive. And humility, as you talk about in the book, is, I wouldn't say it's difficult to understand, but you you talk about there's all kinds of misconceptions around humility. Maybe we could begin there. What are some misconceptions about humility? Sure, sure. So so here, you know, I also looked at some just the, the modern literature, not religious literature, stuff coming out from psychologists and even business people. Uh for example, there was there's a book by a couple of business people. It's called "Humility Is the New Smart" that came out a few years ago, and they're pointing out that in, in this work world today, where everything is changing, you know, constantly new technology, constantly updates to technology we're familiar with, 
you have to have some degree of humility to, to thrive in the workplace. You have to realize I have to be open to learning new things. I can never just rest on my laurels, you know. Uh, but they even point out there's a lot of misconceptions, though, that humility has connotations, perhaps especially in our time and our nation, of like thinking less of yourself, of being too timid, of not reaching out, of not achieving. Uh, psychologist Martin Seligman, one of the great modern psychologists, with a co-author, wrote a book called Immoral Virtues and Character Strength, uh, about 18 years ago now, I think. And they had a chapter on humility in modesty. And they were pointing out, too, that, that I think somewhere in there they say humility, you know, training yourself in humility is not training yourself to be a, a shrinking violet or depressive, you know, or a hopeless case or anything like that. Because often we have this idea that, that yeah, humble means you're not going to stand up for yourself. You're not going to try maybe to do difficult things. You're going to settle for less. And in, in some people's minds, uh, humility is even like, like denigrated. It's not really worthy of a human being. Because I remember when I was an atheist, some people would, would really get on the Christian idea of humility. They'd often cite something from one of the Psalms that King David wrote. He says, you know, I'm a worm and not a man. And they'd say, look, you know, that's what Christianity wants you to think of yourself as you're nothing but a worm. So, so how are you ever going to be a happy, fulfilled person if you're going around thinking you're no better than a worm? You know, so, so, so we have these kind of ideas that they kind of imply that humility means thinking less of yourself, you know, being down on yourself maybe not trying to be a success, where a more accurate picture of humility would be, you know, not to think necessarily less of yourself, but to think in a realistic manner about yourself. Like the old inscription on the, the oracle, you know, in, in Greece, know thyself, to know, uh, to know your limits, but also to know your strengths. It's so interesting. I was thinking about the word confidence, reading the book and it's um you know why don't we call humility confidence because it's it's really it's uh i mean maybe it's a bit of a paradox or something but it's really some sort of deeper authentic confidence it seems like to me oh yes yes you know that's kind of in the strong christian formulation comes from saint paul you know he says i can basically do nothing on my own but i can do all things in christ who, who strengthens me so from that perspective, humility, you know, of course, you know, related to the word hummus for, for the earth, says, yeah, we come out of the soil, I guess, like the worms do, you know, and <laughs> ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But in the Christian teaching, but there's something very special about man. And even in, even in the, the great pagan philosophers, they knew that, that, you know, we have this reason, uh, will, we have intellect like other creatures don't. So there is something special about us. So humility is recognizing our, our humble beginnings but also the great potential that God gave us. And, and as Christians, we, we think, too, that one of the first acts of humility is to realize we did not give ourselves our own existence. You know, none of us did that. You know, the fact that we're here was not our choice. And it ultimately awaits on God. The fact that we're here, that's anything here, that we're sustained. So humility can say, hey, you know, th this is what I am. I didn't give myself my own existence, but, but God, God gave it to me willingly. And he's given me a lot of things. So, so I can do good things as a human being. You know, as long as I know what my limits are and, and still try to recognize and uh, capitalize on develop my potentials for, for powers to be able to do good things. You mentioned seeing reality um, initially, and I, I made a note of that to quote something you write in the book. One of humility's basic roles is to ground us in reality. Could you say more of what that looks like? 
Sure, sure. You know, so so one thing it is a, a real, a, you know, again that awareness of yourself, what you can do, what you can't do, and I kind of started in the book at a developmental level, showing how all virtues kind of develop. Like Thomas Aquinas is like from how a boy or a girl becomes a man or a woman; they develop over your your lifestyle. So I give a few real simple examples of how humility can come into play in just your daily life. And and here's my background as a psychologist, specializing in memory. So so I did a couple of those. I say. Imagine the sad case of Sally. She's this little five-year-old, and some psychologist like me has gotten hold of her and is going to give her a memory test, uh, one called the digit span test, where you just read a string of digits to people, you know, five, one, seven. You ask them to repeat them back in order, you know. So the psychologist is t- explains to Sally he's going to do this, and he's going to give her longer strings of numbers, up, up to ten numbers, the last one. And he asks her, how many do you think you can remember? You know, sadly, she's about five years old. There's a high chance she's going to say all of them. You know, I'm going to give you all 10. Uh, And then when the psychologist does the test, how does Sally actually do? Well, at five years old, she's probably going to top out at about four or five if if she's pretty, pretty good, good memory instead of all 10. So I say, well, so what's going on there? Well, there's just a natural developmental course for our memory powers. The average person can remember about seven digits or some people a few more on a string like that, but it, it develops over time. We don't get, it's not till about maybe 12 or 13 years old that we tend to get our maximum uh, power there. And, and I will say that they, they found that for younger children, they, they do tend to overestimate what they can per- remember. Uh, and as they get older, it becomes more and more accurate. And I note in the book, that actually one of my sons for a grade school science project, we replicated this. He went around to different kids from preschool, different grades in the school, told him he's going to do the memory test, ask him how many they can remember, and then he actually measures it, and he found that. It did work that way. The little kids overestimated. So the idea is that, is it because little Sally was proud? Well, no. It was, you know, she, she it was ignorant. She didn't wasn't fully aware of her power. So that develops over time. So part of what humility can help us do, though, all of us do, is not to be ignorant of our, of our limitations. So we can, you know, then grow in powers over time because... If you overestimate, it, you know, if you think this is easy for me, chances are you're not going to do something, even in something as simple as a memory task, as like concentrate real hard or repeat the digits as they go along. It's those little things that can help you actually memorize better. But if you think you don't need them, you know, you're, you're not even going to use them. Uh, you know, and another area like this, I remember teaching developmental psychology in the 1990s, and there were some studies out there where uh, American grade school students were in these international comparisons with other students on a variety of subjects. And, you know, we, we often were not at the very top, you know, on things like math. So m- many other countries tended to exceed our, our, our average students. But they also did some, some measures of their self-esteem regarding particular issues. And when it came to something called math self-esteem, the U.S. did, in fact, win. In other words, our kids were very, very competent about abilities that they didn't really possess. So, you know, there was a time of big self-esteem push in the United States, which is a good thing. You want kids to feel good about themselves. But again, you don't want to lose contact with that, that reality there. You want them to recognize the great potentials they have, but you don't want them to think that they've already developed these skills that they, that they, they don't have. So, so one of the key things with humility then from a development perspective is to know your limits. And then I tell one little brief story on the flip side. But humility also knows its powers because there's, there's that realism there. And there was a true case of a 10-year-old boy whose mother contacted me. He'd read that first memory book I, I talked about, Memorize the Faith. 
And he set this goal. He wanted to memorize the names of all the popes in order. And there were 265 of them. Some have <laughs> wow. weird names like Zosimas and Eleutherius. <laughs> and even names as simple as John. I mean, you have to memorize 23 of them and exactly where they fit in the sequence. So I remember telling his mom, you know, giving him some suggestions, but saying, you know, make sure he doesn't isn't too hard on himself. He's only 10 years old. He may not be able to do this. So if it, if it seeds his capacities, just chalk it up to something he fun that he tried. Well, anyway, a few months later, I got a call. He'd actually he'd done it. Little John Paul, this time he had turned 11. He, he can now name all the popes. And they invited my wife and I to come up and see him do this at a talent show at, at a convent. And, and he did it. His dad was behind him with one of these charts that that has all pictures of the popes. And he's going, boom, 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 as, as John Paul's mm-hmm. calling them off. So that was kind of fun. And, and one little tidbit to this story. We found out that his parish priest was really into memory techniques. And he told mm-hmm. him when he was a high school teacher, he'd offered a cash prize to any student who could memorize the names of all the popes. And no one ever cashed in until he told, mm-hmm. he told that story to these young kids. And John Paul said, I'm going to cash in. And he actually did. And I happened to see that priest some years later when I was giving a talk in a different city. And we kind of reminisced about this. And he said, yes, John Paul did win uh, an undisclosed sum by, by memorizing all those popes. But kind of the twin ideas with those little stories, the memory stories is, you know, don't humility recognizes our, our limits and our weaknesses, but it also recognizes our potential strengths. And, it, and it, it's not unwilling to, to try to achieve great things if they're realistic. That's great. I, I, I love that story. It it seems like many of the things that are challenging for us is when there's these different poles, you know, some sort of middle way and both of these things being being true. I wonder, you know, there's sometimes this emphasis on positive thinking or belief in yourself, like you might think of an elite athlete an Olympian visualizing and maybe we might assume that they're not thinking about the potential of being unsuccessful, but there's still only one person that wins the gold medal. There's still, you know, a, a whole group of people that are maybe using some of these things and not necessarily being successful. It, for me, the humility, it seems to connect with some sort of entrepreneurial mindset that we might think of, of really seeing the possibility that, you know, we could face some obstacles, we could realize some successes, both of those are possible, but you can still keep going and still navigate whatever path, you know, you've decided to uh, embark on. That, that's exactly right. And somewhat St. Thomas Aquinas talks about that, that this idea reminds me of this, comparing and contrasting humility with the other virtue of magnanimity or greatness of soul. So kind of humility reigns us in for things beyond our power and magnanimity kind of inspires us to achieve, to achieve great things. And we need to have that, that balance. They should be there, uh, you know, both in, in full operations, if we're going to achieve things in life that are worthwhile. And another aspect of humility then in terms of like achievement or success, I mean, the goal is going to be something that's worthwhile in itself. Not that I'm going to become now, a famous person or a rich person, or people are going to think so highly of me. It's going to be, I'm going to do something that's actually uh, worthwhile. So another distinction that, that is found in the Stoics and that modern psychologists have come up with actual labels for one idea that I, I find in the discourses of the old Epictetus from first century AD. And he talks about like, there might be a person who's very, very fluent and eloquent and has a great vocabulary, amazing conversationalist. But if they have to give a public talk somewhere, they, they freeze up and they're all nervous and they stumble over their words or they 
or they avoid the situation altogether. He gives another example of a person who might be a magnificent musician, and they can play on their own or maybe play for a small group of friends and do great, but when they have to give an official concert, they're all worried about it, and they're a wreck, and they try to avoid it, or they, or they foul up. Uh, and he says, you know, because the difference is, when there's a group there, uh, the speaker's not focused on his speech, on imparting wisdom in a beautiful way. Mm. The musician's not as focused on producing his beautiful music as they are on what are people going to think of me? You know, mm. how am I going to be rated? And in modern terms, modern psychology, they talk about this as a ego orientation versus task orientation, where that ego orientation is the focus on the me. What are people going to think of me? Whereas the task orientation, focus on, on the, the task at hand. Say, so I'm going to do my best at that regardless of what people think of me, regardless of what other people consider uh, I'm going to succeed or fail. And I will say that that kind of idea had a powerful impact on me personally. In my mm. college age years, I was very, very shy and absolutely dreaded any form of public talk. But when I practiced some of these kind of ideas, um, I remember once a, a fundamental difference was when I gave a talk for a particular psychology class. And before I started, I, I told the other the group of students, I said, I apologize if you can hear my voice cracking, if I'm turning red as a beat, you know, if you can see me sweating, just my heart pounding in my chest. Sorry, <laughs> that's just me. And then and I gave my talk, you know. So it's kind of like we often fear, oh, people are going to notice. Oh, look at that. You know, he's sweating. Oh, look at that. You know, and it's kind of like once you make that apparent, you already make it happen. Then you're free to say, okay, now I don't care so much about me. I want to give these people the best talk I can on this particular information, which I consider is important and worthwhile. So, so anyway, that kind of thing was very, very personally helpful for me to try to keep that idea in mind, focus on the task as much as possible, a lot less on the ego or what other people might might make of what you're doing. It's fascinating. I, I've done... Um... It's come up maybe in a few previous episodes of the the concept, I guess, that shows up in many different wisdom traditions of letting go of the outcome, mm -hmm. if, if you will, which is um, a real challenging thing thing to do at times. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah, you're right. It's in the different religious and philosophical traditions like the Stoics and like Cicero talks about that idea what they call the reserve clause sometimes that you're going to do the best that you can, but there's no guarantee of the results. Like Cicero says, you can shoot an arrow and aim it just right, but maybe a gust of wind comes and knocks it off course. And I think in, in the book of James, you know, in the, in the Bible, it says, you know, don't say I'm going to do this or that tomorrow. It says, you know, I'm going to go here or do this, basically the good Lord willing, if God wills it. And Seneca has similar statements. Where he says almost exactly the same thing. And it's that idea, too, that the Stoics like to emphasize of what's under our control and what's not. You know, in our attitudes, our thoughts, our beliefs, you know, to some extent, our behaviors are under our control. But but the outcome, how others receive them or what might happen, you know, to intervene, we can't control that. So we have to be willing just to do our best and accept what happens, even if uh, objectively it, it might be considered a failure. How about the opposite of humility? How how do you think about or or define pride and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Pride, you know, yeah, almost the exact opposite would be in, in just an overinflated view, an unrealistically an overinflated view of yourself. And considering yourself, you know, more more competent than you really are, more capable than you really are. You know, in the classic, you know, the Christian 
believe Jewish tradition, you know, Satan's sin was he wanted to be like God. He didn't wouldn't accept what he really was. He wanted to be uh, the the ultimate, like God. So it's not appreciating, you know, your true potentials, your true talents, assuming more, assuming you're more than what you are. And uh, as I'm going through some some scriptural uh, writings here in one of the particular chapters. Uh, I go mostly, I think it's mostly from the book of Proverbs. And there's several places throughout it says, the fool does this, 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 this. The wise person does this, 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 you know. And I kind of laid out a, a side by side. And I thought, boy, the, the, the fool, you could almost pair with pride. And the wise, you could pair, pair with humility. Because like a characteristic of the wise person is, you know, they're going to listen to other people. They're going to exercise caution, you know, before they act. Whereas the prideful person, well, this is the foolish, but because they have pride, it says they don't want to listen. They only want to speak. You know, they want to express their opinion. They keep repeating their mistakes like a dog returns to its vomit. So so I think that that pride, yeah, it is, um, you know, in, in terms of the sin of pride or the, vi- the vice of pride. Yeah, it's having an overinflated, unrealistic view of what you really are. And, and often that what comes with that, you know, in the real world, when we have significant pride, it often entails, it can entail a sense of superiority that, that you're more valuable, you're more important than other people are, where humility should have just the opposite, I mean, connotation that, yeah, I want to achieve great things, but Lord help everybody else do it too. You know, just because uh, for me to succeed doesn't mean somebody else needs to fail. It seems to be such an important lesson simply understanding and having some clarity around humility and pride. I remember writing a, a a paper maybe a year or two ago, and I was doing some research and, and found this article that talked about um, narcissism, maybe, you know, connected to pride a bit and things like that, ends up actually getting people promoted and often, according to the research, shows that greater likelihood for for some of these individuals to to get into leadership positions seems to be just a lack of clarity it's kind of difficult to truly understand the differences and what you know authentic confidence looks like how should we i'm not sure i have a question there but any any thoughts yeah you know yeah a few things that, that come to mind there is one you know because there's kind of different ways of looking at pride and say, you know, your child, oh, I'm proud of you. You know, it doesn't mean I have this vice in my soul because of you. And I think you're better than other children, you know, because you're mine, because you're mine, you know. Um, but there is a sense of like, like um, a sense of, of joy that comes from doing good things, making accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, there's nothing counter to humility to there, to enjoying, you know, your, your successes and, and maybe giving credit where credit's due and other people have, have helped you get there. But I guess, yeah, with the narcissism, yeah, um, sometimes, you know, people like that who tend to be driven by their own ideas will rise because they're dedicated. In a sense, I guess, well, I'm just kind of speculating here, but sometimes they will be very, very task-focused, but maybe because the light that will shed upon them, the, the way that will build their resume, the, well, the way they'll climb. So sometimes they'll climb. And, and maybe from some of that narcissism, in, in a sense, has some, can it might have some positive side effects. Um, I also, then, then the, the kind of the flip side of that, I also think of the old Peter principle, you know, the idea that sometimes people get elevated to their level of incompetence. 
that, you know, they're going to rise through the business world because they have this success and then that. And then maybe when they finally get promoted high enough, they're no longer successful. Okay, here's where you're going to rest because you, you kind of reach your pre peak. You're now you're beyond your actual competence level. So you're not going to go higher. So, yeah, pros and cons there. I would just say that, you know, success in the business world or being an entrepreneur, I mean, it does not, not necessarily oppose humility. You can be very, very humble and say, I'm going to build this great organization that's going to give yeah. a lot of people very nice jobs. That's going to provide a lot for the, for the common good. So, so it is really a nuanced thing to, to balance things like humility and pride or humility and, and magnanimity. So it's like, yeah, we still want to achieve uh, great things. Like Thomas Aquinas talks about the, the gospel parable of the master and the talents you know, he, the master's going away, this very rich man, and he gives one of his servants five talents. And a talent, they said at that time, was about 15 years wages for a labor. So it was a lot of, a lot of money. And he gives a guy, he wasn't quite as competent because he says he gives according to their ability. He gives another servant two talents to hold for him and another one just one talent. You know, then he goes away for some years and he comes back and he's so happy the man with five talents has turned it into ten. The man with two talents has turned it into four. But what about the guy with just one well, he just gives him back just one, you know, he, he just, he buried it in the ground. Right. And I'm saying, you know, the, the master was very, very pleased with the guy who turned five into 10 and turned two into four, but he didn't, wasn't very pleased at all with that man who just buried his under the ground, you know, and it wasn't like he went and spent it on wine, women and song. Uh, maybe he was humble. He thought, well, oh, I don't have much ability. I'm just going to bury this. But, but no, he got, he, he got in trouble. But the way Thomas describes this is that man who just buried his talents under the ground and talents being a symbol for literal talents, like whatever powers or gifts we've been, we've been given. So it didn't display humility, but the opposite of magnanimity, which is actually pusillanimity, smallness of soul. So we have to be careful too, to make that uh, distinction that, that being humble doesn't mean you say, I'm not going to try things. I, I can't do hard things. Mm -hmm. Humility also, and fortitude can be set the stage for fortitude even, you know. You realize, yeah, you know, I, I might fail, but I'm going to brave it. I'm going to do things that are fearful. I'm going to try it, even if I might fall on my face. So, so yeah, in the real world, I think it's real important to, to uh, have real nuance here and see the pros and cons that, that come with different character traits. But, but one thing I will say about humility, many of the great writers, especially the Christian writers that I'm familiar with, have said that humility kind of is like the base of virtually all the virtues. It kind of sets us up to fully employ, you know, more active, maybe more powerful uh, achievement-oriented virtues. It's so interesting. As you, as you talk about fortitude there, I love that you included humility as a way to, to overcome fear and navigate fear. I, I was not making that connection, but after reading it, it makes complete sense. If you think about some of the obstacles to taking the path of courage, you know, it's oftentimes maybe we're going to fail or we're going to mistake or, you know, we're going to make mistakes and things like that. With with humility, that's just part of it. There's an acceptance and embrace of that. You're able to to navigate and, and act courageously. Now, yeah, it really can be because you might have some undertaking that's important to you, whatever it is in academics, in your career world and relationships. You can ask a, a woman uh, who appeals to you out, you know, when you're a young man. Um, yeah, humility can, can give us the courage because you can tell yourself, you know, hey, I might fall flat on my face or I might get laughed <laughs> at. And humility is what can help you say, big deal. <laughs> so what? Uh, <laughs> you know, 
I'll go on. I mean, it's not it's not easy, and, it, and it's, it has to be built up over time. But uh, but yeah, it really it really can. And again, it ties into that being focused on your task rather than yourself. Um, mm. And one thing can be in such subtle ways. Years ago, I wrote a book. I was asked to write a book on loneliness. You know, and they're saying about now about one person in three will report feeling pretty significantly lonely. So every time we're out in the world, you know, we're coming across lonely people. And I say, you know, sometimes little little things might make a difference to a person like that. Just saying saying hello or smiling at them or doing some small talk, you know, recognize, hey, I recognize that you exist, you know, you're 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 meaningful. Or or maybe if a person you know so much somewhat better, you, you have a reason to think they're lonely or isolated, you might want to ask them to go do something with you, you know. But humility can help us reach out to these people uh, as opposed to being thinking too little of ourselves, saying, well, who am I? They're not going to care if I acknowledge them. Well, maybe they won't, you know. But so what? I'm going to take that risk. Or if I ask them to do something, maybe they're going to reject me. Okay, well, that's okay. So humility can also help us be more kind in a way. It can it can help us be more ready to, to reach out to other people, even though we might be rejected. I love that. And you were talking earlier about knowing – our, our size and maybe how we fit in society, maybe um, pride of or the opposite of humility, seeing ourselves larger. Um, I don't know. How do we come to that? Think about a, I did an episode a while back on, on harmony. I think of humility and harmony mm-hmm. as you were talking about that, of seeing our place in the world you know, accurately. I think of Marcus Aurelius talking about what's good for the bee is good for the hive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like a way to for ourselves to feel connected and as you were talking about connecting with, with others. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, because that, that prideful attitude, you know, I mean there's the old the old biblical saying again, you know, pride leads to a fall. And you know, I've seen that in my own life. There there's a major incident happened in my late thirties, right when I obtained my doctorate in psychology. I just I was chomping at the bit to be a psychologist, you know, partly because, oh, now I have this title. Oh, I have a higher income. So I basically took took the first job that was offered to me, even though it had virtually zero connection to any of my specialty areas in psychology. Mm-hmm. So it's a super poor fit. It required that I sell the house that we love, that I relocate my wife, that she lose her job, that our kids go to new school. Uh, and I did all that because I thought to myself, I've never failed in anything in my life. <laughs> but anyway, then it ended up that the job was such a, a mismatch that a day I received a letter in the mail showing that I had passed my psychology exam. I, I actually got the highest score in the state. I, I set my school record. I was in the middle of a depressive episode because I realized I made such a poor choice that I was not fit for this job. And I ended up having to take a voluntary demotion. Go back to lesser paying job. Well, thank God, you know, he was looking out for us. My wife was able to get her job back. Things worked out really, really well after a lot of, of pain and suffering. But I saw that it was a powerful lesson uh, uh, for me. You know, we can be confident in our abilities, and that's great. But we do have to be realistic. We have to be careful not to take on more than we can chew, even if we think we can chew the world. You know, we can't. We can't. So. So I'd say one thing, when we do have these setbacks in our life, it's a good time to reflect and say, hey, you know, what can I learn from that about my own limitations? And, and good can come from that, too. I remember one thing that happened to me. The only time in my life I was in a depressive episode, I'm hoping, it seems to me, it has given me a little bit more compassion for other people who suffer with depression, to, to remember what it's like to, to be in that state. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, the, the issues of, of 
pride, I mean, they, they truly can be dangerous. But even when we do fall from pride, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn when we when we get back up. Well, that's well said, Kevin. Thank you for for sharing that. It makes me think of um, there's this idea. Sometimes, even when we think of, uh, I can't remember where I where I read this, but it made sense when I when I did read it of. Um, when we think of ourselves as less than, even if we're thinking of ourselves as, as maybe small, that, that, and that also is narcissism and, and pride because it's like we're predicting the future when we're saying, like, I can't do X, Y, and Z. We're essentially putting some knowing on there that we, you know, we've just labeled that we know we can't necessarily do something. Um, and I've heard that described as, uh, you know, some narcissism and, and pride of, of even seeing ourselves too small. Oh, yeah. You know, it can be. And there's some, some talk of this in the, the Christian tradition, too, that some people, in a sense, will almost brag about their own depravity, their own sins, you know. And there's a classic sin called the sin of uh, despair, where you think, you know, basically, oh, my sins are so grave, they can't be forgiven. You know, I am so powerfully sinful that even the Almighty God uh, can't can't remove my sins. So you do you do have to watch uh, for that. And then I think too in the, in the pagan tradition, like Seneca, when he's talking about people who want to take on a life of philosophy and live for wisdom, he said, you know, be careful. He says, you know, you don't want to wear all the flowery robes and the jewels necessarily, but you don't necessarily want to go around by a pauper either. He says, you know, fit in with the people around you. Don't don't go around, you know. Trying to get people, oh, look at him. Look at how simply he's living. You know? uh, so, so there is some real truth to that. We, it's not a virtue to be unrealistic, to put yourself uh, down. But now here's an interesting twist, because when I was going through some of the traditional Christian uh, analyses and recommendations, but, but Benedict says, you know, and then in St. Anselm of Canterbury was another a scholastic from like you know, the 1100s or so. He wrote about this, what they call seven-story mountain of humility. Uh, and they, they say things like this, you know, count others, always count yourself, you know, as more vile than, than anyone else. And then Thomas addresses the St. Thomas, and he has an objection. Wait a minute. Humility is supposed to be accurate and realistic. Is it realistic to always think you're the worst, to count others better than yourself? And he says, well, just really in a nuanced way. Because remember, most of us, when we think about ourselves, we tend to emphasize the good stuff and kind of downplay the bad stuff. But when we think about other people, it's often the opposite, right? We're going to highlight their faults and maybe ignore their good points. But he also says, I think borrowing from St. Augustine, remember, other people may have hidden talents. They may be wonderful in areas that you have no idea. They may do wonderful good Things for people you do not know. They might be praying for you, you know, and you don't know it. So he says, one, one recognition this is, don't forget your own hidden faults and don't forget other people's potential, you know, hidden talents. So, and then ideally, really, it's not going to be a matter of, of a comparison after all. Uh, you know, comparing yourself one person to another. You're mainly going to try to be realistic about, about who you truly are with your own strengths and weaknesses. I love it. I, I've got to share a uh, an Augustine quote that you end, end the book with. I, I was not familiar with this quote, but you quote St. Augustine, almost the whole of Christian teaching 
is humility. Man, that is a that's a that's a strong statement right there. Why do you think we tend to spend so much time on maybe other questions that are not quite as as practical? Yeah, that's a very good and important question. I will say this is something that that kind of statement had an impact on me as I was researching this book because I'm into the virtues and you know writing about all kinds of different ones and, and I and I include them all in this book, but showing how. Humility kind of underpins all of them, it kind of opens the door to all these virtues and, and to all these graces. So, so I really do see how it, it's foundational because when I read this myself, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I need to open up my eyes and, and, and wake up to this fact that, yeah, if you can truly be humble and, and humility is tied to truth and, and Christ, Jesus Christ, at one point he says, you know, come, come to me, learn from me for I am lowly, you know, gentle and lowly in heart. You know, so he's one of his most direct calls to us is to be humble, to be lowly, you know, like he is. And that's what unleashes us to do so much more. So, so in my own case, I think, you know, if there's you know, things I might want to do or try, but now, nah, you know, I, I could fail or people are going to think I'm an idiot. You know, humility can say, so what? Uh, if you think it's worthwhile, do it and God will take care of the rest, you know, and sort things out. So yeah, th- th- that humility yeah, maybe it's downplayed because in our culture, especially because, yeah, people tend to think it's the opposite of confidence, you know, or the opposite of self-esteem when it really should be a very realistic assessment that, that kind of helps set our potentials free. It's so interesting. I was I was writing a newsletter the other day on um, some of the, the writings of Confucius. And one of the things that was mentioned in there is that they don't necessarily have any sort of strong opinions or a lot on on afterlife and things like that and, and death and some of these questions and basically the response was you know we're focused on on right here on on practical practical living which i mean there's nothing wrong obviously with um the perennial questions and contemplations and, and things like that but it, it does seem like some of these practical virtues especially something like as you talk about a foundational virtue of humility, often just leapfrogged, I guess, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And I think about that, those practical concerns, you know, going back also, I mean, I have this wonderful wisdom there. I, once in a while, I enjoy reading Confucius. And some people said he's kind of the Chinese Aristotle or Mary of Aristotle's, the Greek Confucius, you know. But, so it's a really wonderful practical wisdom there. But even though know, St. Thomas Aquinas, his masterwork, Summa Theologica, over 3,000 pages, and the first half is mostly on God and creation, the first of three parts. The, the third part is on Jesus Christ and, and the church and the sacraments. The middle part is basically on humanity, uh, virtues, happiness, human psychology, you know, how we think, how we emote, all these practical issues. And that second part is really as long as the other two put together. He puts about 1,500 pages on that because the idea is it's how we live this life is going to determine how we spend eternal life. But he says, too, in a way that the pagan philosophers could grasp, Thomas talks about a twofold happiness. Well, the ultimate happiness, he says, is the beatific vision with God in heaven. He said, but at first, there is a natural human happiness, and we're made to strive for that, too. So that's that, that practical wisdom that comes in daily life. Humility serves, serves that, at that natural plane, too. How do we, like maybe St. Thomas Aquinas does... How do we peel the onion back to maybe get a deeper understanding of 
whether it be humility or, you know, fill in the blank with anything. It seems like there can be a tendency of you hear humility, you see a book on humility, and we think that we understand it and we get what humility is. But as you mentioned a couple times, there, there's nuance. And, you know, St. Thomas is asking all these questions and really doing this deep dive into these topics. How can we, you know, live our lives like that maybe, if that's something you would advise and any thoughts? Yeah, I would advise that because, you know, yeah, it's one thing to sit here and learn about humility. And I think that's important to define concepts, to understand the connections. I I think very important. I try to delve a lot into that. But the bottom line, if we ourselves are not just going to know about humility, but, but hopefully grow a little more humble, then there's it, just all kinds of simple, simple things we can do. And I do in this book with uh, what I call like a maintenance manual for humility, because I set up the earlier book kind of like as an instruction manual, how we maybe can build some. But they can be, you know, as simple of things. And I talk about things I mentioned earlier, just like acknowledging other people, showing them that they're important. You know, don't always be focused on yourself. Be aware of the people around you. I even have things as simple, look, you know, judging from my own life is, you know, I said, you know, go clean your family's toilet. You know, uh, it's an inside joke I have with my wife. Um, she'll, so people are coming over. She often gives me a scrub brush to go clean the toilet. I said, and I said, you know, I'm an author of many, many books. What would my readers think? And she would just give me, give me a look and hand me the stuff and said, Hey, I'm going to be around in a few minutes and make sure you did it right. But just those little, those little acts of service that we should all be willing to do can make a difference. You know, give us that mindset that, I don't care how I look to others or there aren't tasks that are too demeaning for me to do if they need to be done. The little things like that can really help us, you know, grow it in our own cells more than simply just reading or thinking about it. Yeah, I enjoyed reading, reading that story about cleaning the toilets uh, mm-hmm. that connects with me as well. I like it. Um, I, I jotted down a couple of these um, 50 item user guide. I, I love that. Just coming at the end so you can easily, hopefully, get these uh, in your memory, in your bones a bit. And I, I wrote down number 40, and it says, Everyone's entitled to his opinion, but that does not mean you should always express yours. Sometimes keep silent and listen. That is another just particularly practice when we think about these virtues and practices um, you know, how do you see just the practice of, of being silent, whether that just be with yourself or, you know, silent in the way of listening with others, helping us to grow in humility? Yeah, it really is because, you know, another key aspect of humility is like, uh, like an intellectual humility, being willing, showing that you're willing to listen to others and learn from others. It's also called docility, a teachability. You're willing to, to learn. And, you know, we learn a lot more when we listen usually than and when we speak, and when I was pulling that one out in particular, I was probably pulling from Proverbs, that where they contrast the foolish person, always kind of running off of the mouth, the wise person listening in to others. And I give a quote from Abraham Lincoln, and I, I'm sitting in the town where he lived, you know, before he became a president, Springfield, Illinois, you know, and he said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, you know. And that also has a, a scriptural basis there. So, yeah, so that's just, you know, one of the things, um, be willing to listen. And like, if you're in a conversation with another person or with two people, maybe keep in mind, you know, I want to, if there's three people, I'm going to speak roughly a third of the time, maybe at most, you know, 
So, so yeah, don't, don't try to dominate others. Let them be heard. I think it is one good practice for humility. And it's also, you know, an act of kindness to other people. Our time has flown by and we're, we're at a, at a final wrap up question that I've, I've thrown to you before, but how do you think about, you know, wisdom in, in daily life or define it? Any thoughts on to, to close connecting humility and, and wisdom? Sure. Sure. I'll give it a little go here. And yeah, I do see the humility intimately tied to wisdom. So I'd say to live this out in a practical way is just, you know, just be aware of your own strengths and weaknesses. So watch for feedback and don't try to deny that. And then, then focus on some noble, worthwhile goals, things that are noble in themselves, not for what people will think about you if, if you get them done. And then set your mind on the tasks, the activities that will help you achieve that goal, you know, rather than yourself, rather than what other people are going to think about yourself. So I guess it's in a way it's, you know, set noble goals and then be task oriented to achieve those goals. Well, I'm grateful for your time, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on. Where do you point listeners interested in learning more? And then just a reminder, the name of the book is Humble Strength. I highly recommend it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. My, my own website's drvost.com, just drvost.com. It's not real extensive or updated, but there's a comment box on the bottom. So if people have a comment or question, they can ask. And this book itself, Humble Strength, uh, comes from Ascension Press. So that would be ascensionpress.com. All right. Perfect. Dr. Kevin Vost, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom again. Hey, it is always my pleasure, Joshua. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.